0: I'm Felina and I'm Summer and you're listening to Broken Broken
1: (laughs) because we're both the
0: podcast about living your best life by getting real.
1: Hey broken people this is Summer and this is Felina and our guest today is Leo he'll be joining us by phone all the way from Los Angeles. Hi Leo. Hi Leo. Hi how are you
2: doing? Good
1: thank you for doing this.
2: No problem thank you guys for having me. So
1: I'm gonna let you introduce yourself To the listeners, because I like letting people define themselves here. So why don't you tell us about yourself and your background, Leo? Um,
2: My name is Leo Glaze. Um, I live in Los Angeles, California. I've been a teacher for, God, um, (laughs) sometime over 10 years, but I'm not going to give you the exact year. I don't really want to date myself too much. So I've been teaching middle school history for over a decade. Um, Everything from ancient history to U.S. history to world history and everything in between that. So... Um, I have a degree from UCLA in history. I have uh, another B.A. from Arizona State in political science, and I have a master's in history from Arizona State as
0: well. Impressive. You and Summer have that in common with all your degrees. I've <laughs> yeah. only well, got the two.
2: <laughs> we actually... I, I don't know why the hell I decided to do that, but
1: I guess. <laughs> I say right. that all the time. I don't know why. <laughs> I have some sort of – there's a diagnosis in here somewhere about the yeah. – <laughs> That just makes me go back to school all the time. (laughs) Um, So we actually met on Twitter. Uh (laughs) Can I read your pen tweet, Leo? Yeah. Okay. So he says, I'm not liberal or conservative, left or right, Democrat or GOP, socialist or capitalist, with her or mega. I'm just unapologetically black. It's the most important identity I can have in this social political landscape. So, can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Um, in my dealings with Twitter, and I've been on Twitter for, I don't know, somewhere else, five years or so. Um, as I originally got on Twitter, I got on it because I was um, coaching high school and collegiate football, and I was using it as like a recruiting tool, and then kind of reaching out to the coaching community across the country. Um, mm-hmm. And as I kind of moved away from that, started getting into more of social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I always came in contact with was white people basically trying to put me into different categories, into different stigmas, and and them using conservative, or them using liberal, or them using every other term that you could throw in there between to kind of, um, one, label me, and then Mm -hmm. two, kind of absolve themselves of of any responsibilities or issues for what has been going on in this country for since its inception.
1: Um,
2: I figured that that was really the best way that I could identify myself. And I got tired of just telling people that, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm black. I, I don't really have the luxury of being conservative or being liberal or being capitalist or being socialist. Because at the end of the day, every one of those categories has really done something that, that has led to black people and other people of color being marginalized, taken advantage of in this country anyway. And so for me, um, none of those ideas and labels really apply to me. Um, and I know that other people of color and other black people might feel a bit differently, um, and they've kind of hitched their their, their, their wagon and their ideals towards um, other political parties and other ideas, but for me, um, knowing what I know about this country and uh, how we've gotten here, none of those really apply to me, and, and I really do take that into my classroom on a day-in-a-day-out basis, so even though I work in a really liberal and progressive setting in, in Southern California, um, I still have those students that are conservative based and conservative raised by their parents um, even though the overwhelming majority of them are liberal um, and that's one of the things that always kind of comes up at the beginning of every single year is how I teach history and, and, and what types of uh, quote-unquote plants am I going to put on it and uh, <laughs> it's one thing that I have to just constantly tell them that I, I can't afford to, to have a plant. Uh, my plant is I'm black so.
1: Right well
0: I really like that I am a Mexican woman and I uh, there's been, you know, I, I get what you're saying cause there have been, you know, just like, um, you know, pussy hats for the women's March, like different things involving like the me too movement. Like there are things where I will buy into the initial idea of it and believe in it. And then somehow race gets ignored or, uh, I don't know how you know what it's I'm saying. It's dismissed in white it, feminism
1: a lot. We yes. get excluded a lot.
0: <laughs> and and I don't even realize it because I am so accustomed to it. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm, uh-huh. I don't even recognize that I'm being marginalized. Uh, and so I really appreciate you. I like what you're saying. Just that you know this is who I am, uh, and it keeps uh, the focus on the reality rather than. Uh, whatever is trying to be presented. I get it.
2: Yeah, and, and for me also, I mean, I, I can't sit up here and say that I've lived the toughest life in the world. Uh, my life hasn't always been speaking, and speaking and clean, and I've certainly done things in my life that I would never want anybody else to, to really know about. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I, I grew up in a great, loving household. Uh, my parents instilled the idea of education in me. Um, but I grew up with a certain amount of privilege that I really had to come to grips with as an adult. Um, that I had even over my siblings. I'm the youngest of five, and um, out of my five, out of my other four um, siblings, I'm the only one that, that technically grew up with their father in the house. And it wasn't until uh, my dad came into the picture with my mom that they ended up having father figure as well. Um, but a lot of them were already teenagers and and becoming young men and young women, and so my dad coming to the picture didn't really have a, a really big impact on them other than, Hey, they got to move to another location and now they had a household that had two incomes in it. But they for the most part grew up with a single mother that, uh, dropped out of school in the 10th grade and was pregnant at 15, had, uh, my oldest sister at fifteen. had another child at 18, uh, was working two jobs and they were really the, the epitome of uh, latchkey kids and had a mom that struggled. Like I never knew that life. Mm-hmm. And, um, most of them, I mean, a couple of them tried to go to school. My my youngest sister, who was like seven years old than I am, was the first to actually graduate from college, um, but the other three didn't, um, and they struggled, and they struggled with a lot of things between um, substance abuse and, and alcohol abuse and, and trying to find jobs and, and things of that nature, and for me, I, I never really had that, and so I, I know that I grew up with a certain amount of privilege, and my life wasn't super duper hard, um, so even when I encounter people and, and I talk about what, what's kind of going on in the country and those sorts of things. Um, I know that I speak from a point of privilege because my life hasn't been really, really tough. I, I just know that that I've seen and I've heard from my parents and I've seen and I've heard from my siblings over the last 5, 10, 15 years as I've become an adult and see more and more um, just what the differences were and that's always been a, a bit of a shock for me as well. i um, trying to reconcile that and, and reconcile the way that I feel about my blackness and equality for for all people um not just black people but other people of color as well and, and knowing that my life wasn't really tough but people ask like why should i continue to mention some of the stuff or why should i continue to fight or why should i bring up other people but it's because just because my life was okay doesn't mean that i shouldn't fight for other people's lives to just be okay as well
0: mm-hmm. so seriously i mean if uh i can't believe you're sitting here saying that you have privilege because you know i've I've got plenty of uh, white members of my family who are who very don't think they do. well-to-do <laughs> and uh, raised in very loving, uh, wealthy homes. I'm speaking about my stepfather in particular right this. now. <laughs> and doesn't think that he is privileged. You know, I actually, this is just a little tangent, but you know, I'm a single mom, uh, Summer and I both are. And uh, this struggle is real, <laughs> yeah. Especially when you're trying to do more with your life so that you can provide a better life for your child and for yourself, and make a difference and do something that's meaningful and fulfilling and you know, live a fulfilling, full life. And uh, you know, I had recently my stepfather told me, and he's, you know, keep in mind, my mother passed away, It was his wife and and you know we are close and uh, developed a closer relationship after that but he still we always fought growing up and it was because he couldn't recognize my particular circumstances my dad was an immigrant i was mexican he never acknowledged that part of my identity at all and he still doesn't he still doesn't see that i'm a mexican american woman that that would have anything that impacts your life yeah it, it, in his mind it has zero bearing on my life whatsoever and we'll fight we got in a fight recently because he didn't want to fulfill his uh offer to take me to dinner for my birthday I didn't feel well canceled and he tried to reschedule and he's like well no I just can't afford it mm-hmm. I'm like okay well you could afford it a month ago and he tries to tell me well I'm a single dad and I'm you know just trying to raise a family and I'm just a widower and all this I'm like your children are all fucking grown grown. you don't have (laughs) a house payment you're a white male who made you know at least a million dollars in you've got a million dollars in your retirement fund at least his life must be
1: so hard his parents (laughs) were
0: very well to do they i mean i was just like you haven't got a fucking clue buddy (laughs) and so i say all that to say uh wow, because you acknowledge that you have privilege and can see, uh, you know, the struggles of, you know, perhaps your siblings who didn't have uh, one of the parents in the household and how that might affect them and and you see that as, you know, you having uh, some privilege over them and I can't get this guy to recognize (laughs) his, yeah, anyway. (laughs) That empathy gap we keep talking about. Yeah, empathy gap is (laughs) the right (laughs)
2: phrase there. (laughs) Yeah, and and, and that's unfortunate because, I mean, I I teach at a a pretty prestigious private school in Southern California, so most of my kids are predominant white, and they do come, uh, most of them come from a point of privilege. We do give out quite a bit of financial aid to to other students who have a hard time affording the the pretty hefty sum of tuition. Um, But I have students at my job that have parents that are producers and actors and actresses and and business moguls and things of that nature. So so trying to get a hold of them and their ideas of, of what privilege are, one of the things I have up uh, on, on my door, should I say, is um, basically there's the, a the quote that says that um, privilege doesn't mean that, you're, that, that you won't ever struggle or that you're going to instantly be rich, but it means that if you are struggling, it's not a byproduct of the color of your skin. Right. And, and that's something that I, that, that I leave up on my door all year long, and, and I change some of the other images that are up on my door to just kind of give them something else to look at, something to think about, but that's one that stays with one that we go through all the time. I I can remember when I first really kind of sat back and thought about my own privilege. Um, Because growing up, like, I I wasn't always really close to my three oldest siblings because um, my oldest sister is, like, 16 years older than I am. My oldest brother is 14 years older than I am. And then my other brother is 12 years, 10 years older than I am. Um, So I wasn't really close with him growing up, even though we lived in the same houses for the most part off and on. And one of the things that's always been contentious between us is my education. I, my parents sacrificed, for for lack of a better term, and sent me to a school that wasn't unlike the schools that my other siblings went to. I went to a school in, in Southern California, like elementary school, middle school, and high school that were predominantly white, uh, because they didn't want me going to the schools that were in the neighborhood in which I grew up in. And so, of course, I, I, I lived with all those terms, kind of growing up, being whitewashed. You know, being an Oreo, because I can pronounce all of my words correctly, and <laughs> because I've always had smart shit to say, and,
0: yeah, and I dinner, got called And
2: Thanksgiving yeah. were always contentious. And I, I grew up kind of resenting my older brothers and sisters. And mm-hmm. I fell into the trap of, well, it's not my fault that I worked hard and you guys didn't. And I got my education and I have a decent job and I have a career and I can afford a condo and a car payment and all that other stuff. And I can remember clear as a day me sitting in my classroom talking to some of my students who were watching a bit of a video about privilege. And as I was talking to them about it, like, it, it really just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and I started to well up and kind of kind of go through the process of, of doing this kind of right in front of them in real time about the privilege that I had growing up. And, and it was only then that it really hit me that my life was just so much different than my brothers and sisters. And, and it's it really made a, a bigger impact on just me personally and just just my own plight as, as a black man in America and even recognizing some of the uh, the benefits that I had. Now, I, I'm not going to fault myself and say that, hey, I didn't work hard in order to finish school and, and to have a career and those sorts of things, but I had those opportunities made more readily available to me, to my brothers and sisters, and I felt ashamed of the fact that for so long I harbored those feelings of resentment towards them, and that I would always use that excuse of like, hey, well, I worked hard and you guys didn't, uh, because I really just fell into the ideas of of white ideology and, and, and those same types of stereotypes that went on and on, and, and I can imagine that some of that was a byproduct of the, the academic settings that I grew it. in, and then some of that was just a, a byproduct of me just me just being a dumbass. <laughs> and it, was a, you it know, was a it was a painful realization to make.
0: Yeah, so. no, I I'm kind of having a little realization as we're having this conversation because you know I have uh, other Mexican uh, cousins. Uh, you know, my dad immigrated here with his uh, three brothers from Mexico in the '70s, and. He was fortunate enough to have a family take him in, put him in school, mm-hmm. and uh, you know because of that he didn't continue to farm, which is what a, most Mexican immigrants do is, is farm, and his brothers all continued to farm, and uh, because my dad made a different, you know had a different opportunity presented to him, and then uh, you know later down the line I've had more opportunities, so. Uh, and there were other Mexican girls in my school. Uh, there weren't a lot of us when I was growing up. There was, you know, four or five brown girls, and the rest were a bunch of white kids. Uh, <laughs> Small town Oklahoma. <laughs> and, you know, they would call me a coconut uh, because what? I was brown on the outside but white on the inside because I hung out with all the little white <laughs> girls. But I didn't know any better. You know, my dad wanted to... Right. Uh,
1: I've never heard that one before. Yeah,
0: my dad really wanted to Americanize me and... Uh, you know, he put me in all the little dance classes, all the little white girls. and uh, But I had all these other opportunities, and I see now that, like, you know, while, yeah, I'm marginalized in some ways, like, I did also have some privilege as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it goes through, I mean, it, but that's what you're supposed to do. Like, as a parent, you know, make your life better for the next generation. You know, I want my daughter's life to be better than mine, and that was always my dad's focus, was to make my life better. Better than his, and give me more opportunities, and I'm giving her more opportunities. Right. So, while we can be marginalized, it I think this is a really good conversation to have to also recognize your own privilege mm-hmm. as well. Right. So, yeah, thank I say you that all that. the
1: time because I'm, <laughs> I laughingly call myself beige because I'm very light.
0: <laughs> right, and
1: I do recognize well because I grew up as one of only four mixed cousins. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was, was not. So I have seen. How my proximity to whiteness changes the way people treat me mm-hmm. it's very markedly different yeah and i but we struggle with that in the native community a lot in getting a lot of the lighter skinned to white passing natives mm-hmm. to recognize their own privilege yeah and use that yeah and to help yeah i mean instead of i'm half white community. you know yeah. and that really
0: does make a difference yeah it does yeah yeah it,
2: it's I mean, the closer you are to it, the bigger the difference you can kind of make, the more privilege you get, and hopefully more people kind of understand that and decide to make more of a difference instead of just kind of benefiting individually and and trying to make sure that other people can benefit more collectively with that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, our our
2: privilege really at the end of the day is only as as good as as we can take advantage of it and use it for other people, and if we're not going to, then we really have wasted our privilege because it should be more than just about us. And uh, hopefully more people begin to understand that as we kind of go through
1: this this social landscape that we're in the midst of. Let's hope. So can you tell us some about, uh, we talk a lot about um, education, (laughs) you and I, and and how you, uh, the differences in what you do in your classroom as opposed to what we're more accustomed to, to, because both of our children are in public school and we both graduated from public school. Um, that has a lot more limitations. <laughs> so, can, And we actually interviewed Sarah last week about Sovereign Community School, which I know I've told you a lot about. So can you kind of tell us some of the things that you do in your classroom that's different?
0: And, and before you do that, can you just tell uh, everybody where you live, what school it is that you teach at specifically?
2: Yes. Uh, I live in San Fernando Valley, so I live in Los Angeles, California. And then I teach at a private school in Pasadena called the Waverly School and it's a it's a private progressive school. It, it really is a bit different than any other private school I've I've ever worked at or even have had friends that have taught at. Pasadena is basically like where the Rose Bowl is held every year for UCLA plays their home football games for people that don't have uh, <laughs> that relative geography. Those are literally uh, the Rose only two things is.
1: I know about Pasadena. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing <laughs> about it, so
2: So yeah, like I mean you can you can um, turn on K T L A or whatever channel that is that you guys might have out there on on january 1st and watch the rose praise i'm like my job my school is two blocks away
0: okay um, I, i'm gonna, gonna really be in your area glendale. in april uh <laughs> i'm staying with their friend in glendale in april and my my band is going to be performing in la so i'll I'm have to oh wow, in yeah and,
2: and glendale is, is like the, the community right next to that so from the middle of glendale to pasadena is like a six-minute drive
0: yeah, yeah, um, I was just really looking, really I wanted to look it up on the map as well, because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be in the area, and, and our band's going to be playing at a, at a venue out there, so we'll have to stay in touch. Very cool.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely.
0: Anyway, back um, to, to Summer's <laughs> question, sorry.
2: Yeah, and, and, so, and so my school is really, it, it, it's progressive, it's quiet, it, it, it's private, um, it's pretty small, it's K-12, through 12 and in. I think our total enrollment is from in the neighborhood of like 365, maybe a little more than that, and and it's kept that small in order to keep that intimate setting up. Um, but one thing that a lot of people don't realize about Pasadena is that um, when it comes to square miles, there are more square miles of, of private schools in Pasadena than any other community in the United States. It's, hmm. uh, it's really competitive. There's all different types of private schools that are in that area all competing for kids, whether we're talking about parochial, we're talking about... Uh, secular, non secular, um, conservative, liberal. I mean, there's just tons that go on and on in in that area. Um, and our school is just a bit different. Like, for instance, our private school doesn't have uniforms, so the kids can wear free dress every single day, and they can pretty much literally wear like almost anything that they want to, as long as it doesn't have depictions of alcohol and violence on their shirts or anything like that. Like, they're more than welcome to wear it, they can dye their hair. So, there's a Um, very minimal dress code, yeah, very minimal. Is and, that and to something promote,
0: that, that, like, free that,
2: expression? Yes. It, it goes back to, to a part of that as well. Boys and girls can wear lipstick. They can wear makeup. They can wear um, – they can paint their nails. Um, they can wear flip-flops to school if they want to. I mean, they, they share the whole gamut of almost anything that they can wear. Hmm. Um, and, that, and that's liberating, and, and it's something that's been a bit different than I've ever come across. Um, the other thing is that at my school, um, every teacher and administrator goes by their first name. So okay. my – Students don't call me Mr. Glaze. Um, they call me Leo. Um, sometimes they call me LG or Glaze. They're just they're because they want to. They like my last name, but we all go by first name basis. And that's everybody from the head of school all the way down to a TA in kindergarten. I
1: don't think I've or ever to seen that in a also.
0: Yeah, and 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 why is what's the rationale behind that?
2: Trying to take away like, like the authoritative figure of of the teacher student relationship. I mean, yeah, it I doesn't like that. mean that there isn't respect at that. that is fostered and created between the teacher and the student and vice versa but they do want to make teaching and education um, a bit more personal than it is professional and, and it, it was different for me it's the first job I've ever worked at that was like this so when I actually um, started doing research on the school after I had applied and I got an interview it was a bit unusual and even after I got this job like the first like two or three weeks it was really really tough for me to to walk around and have everybody have, like, 12-year-olds call me Leo. I'm like, and, and, I, and the funny thing is that when I worked at my, my previous school, like, whenever a kid would, would see me out or call me Leo or whatever else, like, the first thing I would tell them is, are we friends? And have I ever bought you a drink? Because if you're not one of those two things, then you can't call me Leo. It's Mr. Glaze or whatever else. <laughs> um, and so the first time I used that at school, the kids are looking at me like, dude, what the hell is wrong with you? And I'm like, I have to remember They can call me Leo. And I've accepted it, and I like it. I, I appreciate it, as a matter of fact. But one of the biggest reasons why I work in private schools as opposed to public schools is because I only get a bit more freedom to create my curriculum in any way that I would like. Um, and this school is the school that's probably given me the most creative freedom to, to create my curriculum. Everything from the books that I use to the content that I teach. So like, for instance, in my classroom, I don't use a textbook. I just refuse. At my last jobs, I had schools that were, we also had to use textbooks Um, and even with those, I had the ability to pick a textbook out of like four or five or six um, that they could possibly order, but they all had to be California state standard approved, um, had to be a textbook, um, had to have certain uh, requirements inside of them. And then out of those like five or six, I could pick one and I could do that. But as I got older, one of the things that I realized throughout my my teaching career was I found myself using a textbook less and less as a reliable source and more as a way to uh, point to the to the children the inaccuracies that go on in textbooks. <laughs> yeah, whether right. some of it yeah. is downright lies, whether some of it is just less accurate, whether some of the suggestive language that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, and more and more every single year, I found out that we were just kind of crossing out more and more bullshit that was in the pages of the book and then having them bring in their phones or their laptops um, or their tablets and doing our own research. And so I figured at some point in time, rather than just continuously using textbooks as a way to just show what type of bullshit was in there, that I might as well just stop using them in general. And Mm -hmm. then just either one, I have like a really, really small book. It's called A Little History of the United States by James West Davidson, which really does kind of give the uh, overall nature of U.S. history um, from indigenous peoples moving on forward to present day. But it's a really small book. It's only like 235 pages instead of like a 700 page book, a textbook. And it allows us to actually kind of read a chapter that's really small, maybe five or six pages, and then it allows us to take out laptops and actually do history rather than having history kind of taught at us through a textbook, and so for then, the the kids actually get a chance to really uncover history for themselves, and it at least a lot of other skill development, like learning how to do research, Mm -hmm. learning what a a credible source is compared to um, an incredible source. Learning the idea of like what fake news is and how you can kind of tell some of those things. Learning how to vet a source. You're teaching source reliability well, in
1: middle school. I, <laughs> I, so wish we had that. I mean, I know grad, I, I know grad school professors who are still trying to teach that to students.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, it sounds like you're teaching the kids to think for themselves, which is a skill that is yes, not so important. Not taught, especially whenever you're required to do standardized testing. I um, mean, that doesn't teach independent thought at all. Of course, it's, it's a, no. you know, in favor of, of certain uh, political interests to keep the masses the dumb always, and, yeah. and not thinking for themselves as well. So there's that.
2: Oh, yeah, d- definitely. And I, I talk to them about as many real things as I possibly can. One thing I talk to them about is the idea of an SAT or ACT or the state testing that, that happened. And we do state testing every year at my school, but we do it not so that we can try to track kids to see what the progress is, but we do it for those students so that way when they get into 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, they have to take the SAT or ACT in order to get into college that they have experience taking it, and we don't use it as something that we teach towards. It's just for the experience of, of actually learning how to take a time test using multiple choice. Right. Um, but I tell my students all the time, like, we actually look up the ideas of where the SAT came from and say um, aptitude testing. And it's not a coincidence that it was created in the 1920s, right in the middle of of Jim Crow and and the separations of uh, races of people. And at the end of the day, like, aptitude testing was not made in order to get black people and other people of color into college. It was meant as a way to exclude us without having to say, hey, you guys are black or you're brown or you're indigenous. We just don't want you here. It was a way for white people that were running these colleges and universities to tell us, hey, your testing score did not match to Billy's over here. So therefore, we get to take them and not take you and not really feel bad about it. Well, and I mean, it's still used that uh, way. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I mean, it's just a measure of what crap you've stored inside your brain, not of your abilities, abilities whatsoever, right. you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe you have a and, good and, memory, maybe that's it, but I mean, that's it. Exactly,
2: and that's what helped me in... in in school as far as like, history is concerned because i had never really had too many tremendous teachers, history teachers. As a matter of fact, most of what I do in class now is in response to some of the horrible teaching that I got as a student. Like I, I learned more of what not to do in my history classes than what actually to do because of history teachers. I, I've had a couple that were really great um, and, and they really did kind of impact my, uh, my teaching style in um, the care and, and, and the compassion that they showed but most of my other history teachers would just write up on the board, you can write a bunch of notes, you can read a boring (laughs) chapter, you're gonna study all this stuff, you're gonna define a bunch of terms, and then you're gonna take a test and then we're gonna move on. And that's one of the reasons why even in my class, I don't give tests. I've I've completely stopped giving tests because I don't want these students learning how to memorize something, just to regurgitate it on the four corners of of a document and then forget about it and move on. And plus I realized that if I were to give tests, I would probably have to give 16, 17, 18 tests a year that's 18 days, which is a little over three weeks, that I can actually teach them more content and, and more connections and, and more concepts instead of them actually having to sit down and try to prove to me what they learned. Um, and so at the end of the day, like one thing I tell them and their parents that even though I don't give tests, they're getting assessed every single time they turn in an assignment. They're getting assessed every single time we have a conversation. So those, in, in those ways, they're being assessed for their knowledge and for their content of what they can bring to the table and what concepts they can connect. Without me having to write down or type up um, a 50 page question and answer document for them to try to prove what they know to me. Right. So I've. So they I've can prove they
1: that. memorized dates. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The memorization of dates and people really have no connection to history whatsoever. Now, dates and people do have uh, an importance in history, but for me, it, it's about connecting why those dates are important, providing context, why those people are important, but not just. Memorizing that the dates that George Washington was president, because at the end of the day, that that really does nobody good. Like nobody's gotten a job. Yeah, who gives a shit? <laughs> George Washington. I never understood. Left in 1789. I,
0: I was so bad at memorizing dates, so mm-hmm. bad. And I'm like, why the fuck does this matter? Right. Like, I know it, it happened. Like, and you're basing my grade on whether or not I can remember if it was 1958 or 48. You know, right. like, this is so inconsequential. Yeah.
1: Right, especially given, because we need to understand the things that happen and how they connect to today. Not if you know which year this happened. Or... Of course, I
0: mean, all I got was some gym teacher, or gym coach as a history teacher that just, you know, had us read sections out of a outdated Right?
1: Textbook and then. My high school history teacher was a horrible human being and a racist. He didn't even try to hide it. Yeah, ours were all. He like... Liked, he liked to talk about how fa- how fascinating he found Adolf Hitler. It was really awful. <laughs> I mean, ours just like
0: <laughs> hit on us. I mean, like, yeah. you know, it was almost creepy.
1: So, we had you to know. Those too. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and I totally agree. And that's one of the bad parts about history that most schools and, and, and most. School districts don't really take a lot of stock into pr- providing accurate history for students. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of history teachers that, that teach out here in public schools, and even in some of the private schools, are coaches. And granted, like I've coached as well, so like I, I don't want to make it seem that if I'm higher and mightier than anybody else. But I've always considered myself a history teacher first, and then a coach second, rather than just. Uh, a coach who happens to teach history in order to keep a job, right. um, and so for me, like, that just doesn't do it any justice, and if you're going to do that, then you might go well just go out there and teach PE and call it a day and mail it in, but even when it came to these ideas of, of taking tests, mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm sure, like, you guys had multiple choice tests, and, like, yeah, you'd put down, like, the year that, that George Washington had his farewell address, and you could put down A would be 1789, B would be 1788. Um, C would be 1798 and these multiple choice questions are not meant to really test your knowledge. They're meant to try to give you a bunch of trick questions in order to trip you up which doesn't teach anybody history whatsoever and no kid walked away from a test being better or more knowledgeable um, because they took a test and so to me it just there's really no point. It's just it's I don't want to call it a dumb idea because I know a lot of great teachers that that still teach and, and still give tests for their own specific reasons but just for me and what I would like to teach my middle school students it's just doesn't, it's not needed.
1: So, what are their then assignments? Different. So, what do your students' assignments actually look like that you're grading them on?
2: Um, we do read out of the book. Um, I will have them an answer questions uh, from the book just so that way they get used to pulling out smaller details and context from the book so that way they can develop that skill because I know that I won't be the only or the last history teacher they ever have, and some of the other history teachers will require that of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Homework wise, they do current events. So some of those current events are are kind of um, free and open for them to pick almost any topic they want. And then other ones are are pretty tailored to different subject matters. Um, So like for this past week, they had to do a current event in which they had to find an editorial about George uh, H.W. Bush. And so the first time that they had really looked at editorials, so we had to talk about what an editorial was. I had to give them the definition, have them write that down. And so they either had to find an editorial that was either showing him in a positive light I mean, his legacy or something that might have been critical of him or Mm -hmm. finding an editorial that might have mentioned some of the good and the bad that he did. Um, And then from there, they um, fill out some of the pertinent information on a worksheet, and then we come in on Fridays, and they each share out kind of in their pod groups, um, which is another story in the way in which I I kind of set up my classroom. And then from there, we have a larger discussion on it about the way that people can be remembered. Um, Why is it that certain journalists um, only bring up some of the good things about George Bush, and they don't bring up anything that's critical of him? Uh, what type of pressures might that journalist be under in order to actually do that? Or, um, one of the things I had written up on the board when they walked in was the question, who tells the story? And I had them look up some of their the, the journalists that wrote these articles. And of course, most of them were white males. Of which means that it's something that they have in contact with, in contact with George H.W. Bush. Um, only a very few of them had uh, people of color that had written articles, and over half of those articles that, that had been written. Um, when they look back on them, we're critical of them. And and that really did make a, a bit of a difference for them. And those are the types of concepts that we try to connect to, um, especially when it comes to present day, um, because we do spend a lot of time talking about history, but I try to find ways every week to connect it to current days. And one of the things that I tell them all the time is that in history, there aren't any um, coincidences. There's only connections. Um, but we also do presentations. We do PowerPoints. We do uh, kind of like web search Worksheets, and where they actually have to crack open the, the laptop and I give them certain things they need to look up to find. We, we do a lot of studying of individual people. So right now we're talking about indigenous people. Um, so we're learning about um, some of the different culture areas, we're learning about some of the different tribes. Um, and one of the things that they're doing now is that I put up a bunch of um, stereotypical terms on the board, such as savages and uh, non-Christians and uh, naked and things of that nature. And as we start going through and doing research with some of our graphic organizers, we're basically finding out or at least they're finding out because i already know this at least most people should <laughs> that
1: indigenous don't. Peoples
2: most people were not don't. Savages, <laughs> that they that, that some of them sure didn't always wear a lot of clothing but you couldn't have the typical idea of what you have in your mind when you think about an indigenous persons um and then apply that to the indigenous people that lived in what we know today as massachusetts or mm-hmm. um, the new england areas or lived in montana or idaho because you couldn't do that in february or if you would die and freeze the death, which is a lot of stuff that most people don't bother to think about. So we we do a lot of research in order to refute some of the common narratives that we see in history. So then that way, when they come across them in other schools, with other teachers and other history classes in life, um, they have the tools and the information that they can use to adequately defeat those common narratives and, and spread more actual good history, which is what we call it
0: the world be like if all of our kids were taught this way. Like right? just think about that for oh, a moment. it would
1: be amazing.
0: Because like I feel like in order for us to do to stop some irreversible damage to our our country to our world, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to have to teach our kids like this. You know, we yes. we're going to have it's up to our the next generation. You know, it it really is and I just this is also amazing. I wish that my daughter was being taught this way and the best I can do given my circumstances, is to try and teach her some of that myself. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all we can really do. But, man, what a... Yeah, I have to do
1: a lot of correction at home right. <laughs> of what they're being taught at school. Right. I can't even get mine to
0: tell me what she's being taught, so I can correct her, you know?
1: Mine try to hide it from me now because they don't want me going to the school because they know I will. Uh, yeah, mine... <laughs> I, I've been... Uh,
0: maybe you can try... Do you guys do... Uh, maybe this is just a dated Oklahoma thing, but... Uh, uh, dare, We do, like, the – Oh, uh, it's the anti-drug Yeah, we do, like, an anti-drug week, and it just drives me nuts. Every year it rolls around, and my daughter knows this. She, like, hid a, a thing that she had drawn – she hid it from me because she knew <laughs> I disagreed with the whole concept of it, dare. It's so ridiculous. I mean, they're teaching kids that every drug is bad, just as bad as you
1: know marijuana if you ever smoke hit. a
2: joint you will die <laughs> right like... yeah yeah are there, are there that weed somehow is now the gateway drug to the gateway drug to smoking crack yes. the, the heroin like no like i know plenty of people that have only smoked weed in their life and haven't bothered to do anything else like that it, it's ridiculous i i don't we don't do that at our school but at some of my previous schools like we've had we've had a like a say no to drugs week where like every day is a different dress of day yeah um, yeah so that's, that's what we're talking we about yeah trouble. yeah it makes me crazy. Uh, yeah, it, it does. And, and I remember one time getting in trouble, this might have been like six or seven years ago, because as we were doing this, like throughout the week, like I was giving them different facts. It, it wasn't even just about the drug use, but it was the consequences of drug use. And, and I showed them like the fact that a, a white person could use a drug and a black person could use a drug and be cons- and, and the same drug and be completely sentenced differently, whether the white person just got probation and the black person was sentenced to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so my, my administration didn't like the fact that I was equating drug use to uh, to racism and, and equating it to the justice system. So I actually got <laughs> talked to that week because that's but, what I was doing. But, but that's the reality.
1: War, but the War on Drugs was just set up as a racist program exactly. in the first place. Exactly.
0: Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, but
2: it's, it, 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 it's amazing how many people just don't like being confronted with authentic history. They, they would like to stay comfortable learning history that they've always learned because it keeps them in a, in a pretty uh, mm-hmm. secluded and, and comfortable and in positive light, not only for themselves, but for the people around them that look like them. So Right, so do you
1: been... ever get pushback from any of the students' parents about the fuller, more accurate version of history that you're teaching their kids? Because I'm assuming most of them probably didn't get that in school.
2: No, my my job, the, the school that I work at now is is overwhelmingly supportive and positive of the way in which I, I teach my students. Okay. Um, I've had a couple of students like over the last couple of years that I've been working at this at this school that have had parents that are uh, conservative or voted for Donald Trump or that sort of thing. <laughs> and um, they didn't necessarily like some things that I was teaching the students, but it really, at the end of the day had nothing to do with than being conservative. Because um, one thing that we also talk about, and, and I can talk about this later, but one of the first things that we do in every U.S. history class that I have, because I teach it every other year, mm-hmm. is um, we teach about citizenship, and we talk about voting, and we talk about elections, and we talk about each child's individual like political spectrum. So that, that way they can kind of have their own idea and their own identity instead of always kind of crafting it toward their parents or to what um, TV station or their parents watch or their grandparents watch. So that way they, they can kind of be their own. But out of the few conservative parents that I've had over the last couple of years that haven't necessarily always liked what I've taught, Mm -hmm. it it wasn't the fact that I was railing against conservatives because I I rail against liberals as much as I do conservatism as well. (laughs) It's just the fact that their kids are coming home and challenging the narrative of what's being taught at home. And and that ends up being the biggest thing for them, that their kids are not coming home and being disrespectful, but their kids are coming home and asking really thoughtful questions that, that that make their parents have to either explain it or get frustrated and you know kind of wish it away and then i get the email or my administrator gets an email that talks about like what are we doing in school or what have we been teaching and then i have to just kind of lay it off them flat and they're they're okay with it and we move on and there we go
0: well that's what you get when you've got parents who actually <laughs> want their kids to learn how to think for themselves and are engaged yes and,
2: yeah exactly <sighs>
0: Well, this sounds like a fantasy world, world to me. I'd right? like to live in it. It's not
1: something that we've experienced.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no. <it> sounds amazing.
1: <laughs> he probably gets tired of me asking questions about it, because I do ask him questions. Like, what do you guys do in your class about this? <laughs> because it's so different
0: from what we have. You know, and it's... Living in Oklahoma, here in the literal buckle of the damn Bible oh, Belt.
1: Oh, uh,
0: You know, and and thinking the way that Summer and I both do... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we probably get uh, judged and, and uh, looked down nice. down upon or challenged uh, quite a bit more than than you probably deal with in L.A., but, uh, man, what would it be like if we could start something like this here?
1: Well, I'm, we're hopeful that that Sovereign Community Schools curriculum is going to be a lot more like this, and mm-hmm. then hopefully once we can see some successes coming out of this that it will spread and other mm-hmm. schools will start doing this or people will start forming more schools that will do more like this
2: mm-hmm.
1: because we've got to move towards education that actually teaches students how to think for themselves and right. logical thought processing instead of just regurgitating quote facts. unquote yeah. facts
0: yeah quote unquote facts <laughs> <is> right <laughs> yeah and it's
2: unfortunate it's both important that that you guys do develop more of the sovereign schools out there but it's also unfortunate that they even have to be created in the first
1: place absolutely
2: which is the same thing for like hbcu i mean mm-hmm. people will talk about colleges and, and you, you always hear from some white guy or some white girl somewhere like how come um uh, black people have uh, black entertainment television or how come black people have <laughs> oh schools in which yeah, only yeah. black people go to right. and white people can't do that anymore like why is it that you have uh Uh, a superhero named Black Panther instead of naming him White Panther or Universal Panther or anything like that. And, like, I always have to go back and tell them, like, we had to do this out of necessity because if we didn't, you guys weren't trying to hook us up and you guys definitely, for the hell, weren't trying to teach us and help us. So, like, these HBCUs, these sovereign schools, have been needed because you guys won't give us the equal footing that we deserve in order to get a halfway decent education. And then when you guys do let us in, it's either to fill a quota or it's in some way to make us assimilate to, to your ideals and your philosophy. Mm -hmm. And that shit just isn't good enough for us. And so we have no choice but to do this. This is out of necessity. This is not out of an actual desire or want to, because we shouldn't have to do this. But unfortunately, we have no choice.
0: It's like the only way to stop the steamroller. You know, Mm -hmm. like we're just constantly being steamrolled by, uh, you know, white society. And in order to, you know, you can... You can raise your hand and jump up and down as an individual and, and try to get a little bit of attention for whatever it is that it, your difference or your you know whatever you're being ignored for, but you have to take these big steps like creating these these schools or whatever it is that you're doing in order to you know actually be seen and stop the steamroller over your own culture.
1: <laughs> Or even, yeah. yeah, even our our lives, even. Yes. I mean, as much as they like to dismiss it, there, you know, there are direct links to right mortality rates here because of the way the system is set up, and I'm not going to apologize. No. For,
0: no, and but but there's no steam, you know. There's no black steamroller. There's no right like they, native steamroller. They steam don't roller. want to.
1: They don't want to acknowledge the power differential because then, right. they, then they have to. Then well, then they have, they'd have to, to, to acknowledge
0: it. their privilege, right. and they're not going to do that. No,
1: because they're afraid they might have to give up some of it. <laughs> but that's why you can't have a white school, or
0: you know, because, white all, your, because TV. all because all the schools Everything are white. Thing is white already. There's no <laughs> okay. like black steamroller, you know, running <laughs> over your culture and, and trying and to exactly. marginalize
2: you. <laughs> exactly. White for us in America is a default setting. Yes. And right. The, the bad part about that is that most white people don't even realize that. Last year when I taught um, ancient civilizations and, and world empires, um, I, I crafted like a, a month and a half, almost two month unit around Africa and Black Panther coming out in that February. We took like the next like six weeks or so and really just kind of talked about the, the empire and history of Africa moving forward. But it was pretty all encompassing and one of the first things that I, that I talked to them about because a lot of my students again being white and coming from a, a pretty influential background where the, where the socioeconomic status is never going to be questioned, they, they couldn't understand why I was so happy about the type of movie that was coming out. And so I ended up finding a, a great YouTube video that, that looked at um, different movies, different movies that, that we think of as being popular and being kind of American and, and movies that were great. And it, and it chopped up like all the different scenes in which a person of color actually had like a speaking role in it mm-hmm. so when it comes to like e.t like e.t one of the biggest movies ever and, like it's in the, the national archives and it'll be here long after we're dead but there's only like 13 seconds of dialogue of any person of color speaking or in lord of the Rings, like you have like 12 hours worth of movie and that thing and you've only got like Two minutes and 26 seconds of any person of color having any type of speaking roles um and these are things that like a lot of people don't even take in consideration because we're just so used to everything just being white mm-hmm. and the other thing that i do with my kids i actually had them look up like the tv show friends in fact, that was one of the longest running <laughs> shows in history in fact that, like every person yeah and every person that was on that show that that was a regular they were making like a million two million dollars every episode for like the last four or five years i mean it literally set up the rest of their lives but how did they could live in the middle of new york city and there was never once a person of color that had a speaking role in that show right and it's and little things like that that i try to have to that i have to convey to them as to why little things like this are important and, and how they can spread um and why is it that white people shouldn't necessarily get upset when there is. An all black, or an all indigenous, or an all Asian, or an all brown cast in a movie, and always thinking about, well, why me? Why me? Why not us? How come we can't be included? How come we can't do that? It's like, dude, you guys do that shit all the time. Express like all us the and time. All
0: <laughs> but they don't see it, you know? Yeah, they don't. They don't see and, and, and it, and a lot of
2: us don't see it either. It's just it's it, 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 it's white supremacy and racism are just kind of all around us, and it's impossible for it to not seep in in some ways into our pores. At different points of time, like it's, it's something we have to actively fight against. And I tell my parents, and I tell the, the students that all the time, like I don't just want to just hope that your kids end up being good people and end up not being racist. Like it's my job to, to teach them how not to be racist, how not to be discriminatory, how not to uh, judge somebody because of color of their skin or their religion or their sexual orientation or their gender. Like stuff so that I have to actively teach them not to do. The the actual stuff in history, the reading and the writing and. and how to write a paragraph or how to write an essay. Like, that shit they can pick up anywhere. But I'm more concerned with my students becoming better people after they leave my class instead of being better, you know, students. The student part can come at any point in time, but the better person part, like, to me, that's my biggest goal and my biggest job as an educator. And uh, it's the role that I take the most serious.
1: Holistic learning. Imagine that. Yeah. Treat them as if they're whole
0: people. (laughs) Well, I mean, everything, a holistic approach would be a lot better in uh, everything yeah. basically everything uh, <laughs> yeah whether
2: it's yeah the, in, in, in every subject
0: well, in, in every subject in education and uh, medicinally treating our bodies in a okay. political you know a political climate in, socially in, in socially when you can look at the larger picture and approach it holistically rather than getting so stuck in your own little groove yeah. well that's amazing i'm now wishing i could move to california
1: and i know right get my kid in your school <laughs> johnny's gonna get, come on gonna and get
2: bring him in oh, I'd, I'd love to teach him and <laughs> i tell my my parents all the time that if they want to stop by and and talk or if they just want to come by and, and check out class one day my door is always open um they're free to stop by whenever they want to they don't need to make an appointment and also tell them like if, if we're talking about something that they have a working knowledge in or experience with i, I have them come in and, and they talk to the students also so, What grade do you teach? I'm sure with as much teaching as I do, like, the kids get tired of hearing my voice as well, and sometimes I get tired of talking, Um, but I try to bring in people from different backgrounds in order to give them different ways to to look at and and different ways to think and different voices to hear. So if you guys would like to to talk um, to my students about Indigenous peoples and cultures and and some of the things that you guys deal with even in current day, because all that stuff is important, stuff that we'll be covering, Um, you guys please. Like, I, I can set you guys up with FaceTime or,
1: well, or something like Daddy, and
2: we can sit down and have a conversation. Yeah. yeah. You know
1: I'm always open to talking to people. Yeah. I prefer talking to kids instead of adults. I, yeah. I see most adults as a lost cause. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: and I will... I feel the same way.
0: I would love to come by your school uh, whenever I am in the area. What grade do you teach?
2: I teach middle school, so I teach seventh and eighth.
0: Okay. Yeah. My daughter's in fourth grade, so a uh, little younger but still I whenever I come out, uh, I definitely would love to stop by.
2: Yes, definitely. You are more than welcome. Just let me know what day you're coming by and you can come on in and you can look at the whole entire school if you want to sit in and craft. Awesome. Um i let you know what we're talking about that week. So if there's something that you would like to add then you're more than welcome to come on in and, and
0: Yeah, I mean I'm a daughter of a daughter of an immigrant, a Mexican immigrant, so
1: could we record it? yeah we could have we could have a uh yeah an episode of felina on location out there teaching the class (laughs) (laughs) yeah sounds good that's
0: awesome (laughs) well thank you so much for uh sharing all of this with us and and just taking the time out to to talk to us today thank
2: you for having me it was fun and and i definitely had a good time doing
1: all right, well, we appreciate it. Do you have anything you want to promote?
2: No, but besides humanity for everybody, no, that's about it. Then I love can, it. Uh, <laughs> make sure that everybody gets free, then we'll be in a much better place.
1: Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leo. Thank you guys
2: very much. You can contact the podcast at brokebrokenpodcast at gmail.com. The Broken Broken Podcast can be found on Twitter at Broke Broken Show, on Instagram and Facebook at Broke Broken Podcast.